holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holders. Hello, Kat. Hello, Kat. And Happy New Year. Happy yes. New Year. How do you say that in Norwegian? Gott nytt år. Oh, that's even more unpronounceable than that. Gott nytt år. Gott nytt år. Gott nytt år. Gott nytt år. Well, that's a so. good effort. I'm not even going to try. But, uh, <laughs> 2024. Yes. Yeah, who thought we'd still be doing this nonsense nearly a year in? Yes, well, that's exciting. When I was a kid, I realised I'd be 38 when the year 2000 happened, which was so exciting because they'd dig up the Blue Peter time capsule. And then I never thought beyond that because no. I thought, well, what's 38? It was nothing. And now that was 24 years ago. Yes, that is yes. quite scary. And do you remember that thrill of 1999 becoming 2000? That's nearly a quarter of a century ago now. It's oh, really terrifying. There are that. people running around being adults who mm. weren't born when that happened. Mm. Yes. Well, I guess for that generation, the formative event is COVID, isn't it? Probably for their lives so far. That's the big thing they'll remember, do you think? Yes. Yeah, it might I think be, so. actually. And that actually dovetails what I'll be talking about later. But this year has been looming in my diary because I'm going to be 60 this year. Well, so I'm not going to not gonna be that. celebrating that too much. And then I've got one son who's going to be 30, another 21, and a daughter who's going to be 18. So it's a bit of a big year party. We're all going to Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so we can just have one party, one, one party. No, party. They've, all, they've all said no to that. Yeah. So that's, anyway, we'll work Wouldn't it out. You, mind. Could you borrow back Spencer House for a big gold knees up? I'm doing that in March. Actually, I've got a book launch there in March. So Fantastic. So a big year for you, Charles. Well, yeah. Is it going to be a big year for you in any other ways, do you think? 62. Hmm. So I think I'm starting this week and I've got a suggestion uh, from a listener that I, I picked up on, which uh, is Amy, who suggested looking into unicorns. Uh-huh. Of course, oh, before I Christmas, that. I went into the Nyssa and all these sort of other supernatural beings. Now, I thought this was going to be quite dull. I've never been that into unicorns, but actually they got a really interesting history that goes back a really long way so i love this one and of course i had to start with the earliest possible evidence there are all these suggestions that early indus valley civilizations had unicorns not probably not really because there are some seals that have an image of a creature with the single horn but it's probably just an animal shown in profile so you can only see one but the real early reference which really everything all our sort of later ideas about the unicorn all comes back to a greek historian and physician dating back to 400 bc and he's called Theseus, or spelled c-t-e-s-i-a-s one of those odd ones but he wrote a book, we wrote several books, one called Indica, which was the first book in Greek on the regions of India, Tibet and the Himalayas. And he actually served at the court of the Persians. And it was a hugely popular book. It was describing the regions, describing things like the animals. He didn't actually 
travel so much around himself and that's important so he was taking tales and stories from travelers and some of it is a little bit wild but some of it is also very very good so this account has been passed on and repeated later on now in it he describes a creature which becomes essentially what we know as the unicorn and he writes that there are in india certain wild asses which are as large as horses and even larger he goes to explain that they are white with dark heads and that they have a horn in the middle of the forehead that is one cubit or about a foot and a half in length. But also explaining that those who drink from the horns, if they are made into cups, are not subject to convulsions or to the falling sickness. He also explains that they are also immune to poisons if they drink from a beaker like this either before or after they are subjected to the poison. Now, that account has essentially been repeated by so many other people later on. People like Aristotle, even Julius Caesar, all essentially build on it with the same description of this animal. And the name unicorn comes from Pliny the Elder, and he describes it as a monoceros. Oh, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes, Yes. I like that a lot. That becomes a unicorn. But he says, for example, that it has feet that are more like an elephant. And there's an interesting link, this this sort of medicinal there, the horn, may well come from the rhinoceros. And it's possible that that early description is a bit of a mismatch of different creatures because rhino horns do have certain properties and they were used medicinally for neutralizing poisons and that sort of thing. So, But I would say it's such an extraordinary jump, isn't it? Because a rhinoceros is a pretty <laughs> ugly, great brute, isn't yes. it? It doesn't look like a horse. But do you think it's Chinese whispers? Is that people through oral tradition, you get a sort of a hybrid emerges, then eventually it appears as the sort of prancing my little pony thing that we know. It mm. seems a little bit like it. So a lot of time and effort as you can imagine, has been spent by academics trying to pull apart this account because some of his initial account of the unicorn is actually really good. So the the biology of it is, of the description, is actually quite decent, but it seems to be a a mix of other creatures. There's an antelope, for example, that's got very straight horns and apparently... Mm -hmm at least historically, they were very difficult to get near to. So if you see them from the side, they do look like they have a single horn. But we don't really know that. But interestingly, some of these later accounts also go into the qualities of this creature. And one of them is the fact that it's incredibly strong. Some uh, explain that the unicorn is invincible. There's another Greek writer writing about 545 that describes the strength of the unicorn lying in its horn and in fact says that when it's hunted and about to be captured instead of being captured it will throw itself from a cliff top turning so that he falls on the horn uh-huh. and thereby Bottom able to escape. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't he doesn't really explain how, how he then sort of gets himself off that again, but which I this don't get. Interesting cat. Now you can see how the rhinoceros would develop a thing. You can see that there's a natural advantage of course we didn't know about evolution through natural selection then but it's very hard to see how you could sensibly arrive at a single horned horse isn't Mm. it yeah it comes from our desire for a mythological creature doesn't it rather than an explanation of natural phenomena possibly also we have that i was going to get to this later but i think i'll I'll jump straight to it because one other account when people have tried to explain it is actually looking at manipulation of horns 
And you can actually do this. And there's some accounts, one from the 1930s, showing that you can take the core where the horn grows from. You can essentially transplant that, take that off, but still attached and then move it to the animal. So if it's a cow or a goat or whatever, move it to the center and then you actually have a single horn growing. And this has been done a number of times. So this was an example that was uh, with, a, with a bull from 1936. And the method is actually called pedicling. <laughs> and it seems like Pliny also writes about a method like that. And in 1906, King George V was actually presented with blue sheep from Nepal that had a single horn. <sighs> and when they were actually exhibited at London Zoo and later on when they were examined when, after they died, it was shown that they did originally have two horns, but they had somehow been manipulated to a single horn. So it is possible, it's physically possible to do that, to manipulate, to change them to... But not so, to a horse. sheep. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's a bit unclear what sort of animal he's actually talking about because there's the antelopes as well and uh, yes. he hasn't really seen them so he doesn't really know which animal it is. So it's interesting. But then they go into and all these qualities become really important and part of it is the strength of them, their strength and fears and they cannot be captured alive according ah, to So that's yes. part of the reason. Uh, of Originally, and that's obviously useful for heraldic purposes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, so that comes in later on. Yeah. And interestingly, some of these records, starting with the one of the Greek texts, and later in the seventh century, Isidore of Seville also talks about the unicorn and says that the only way you can catch it. Do you know how you can catch a unicorn? No. It's a virgin. So a, a young maiden that. virgin can catch the, <laughs> catch the unicorn by essentially, she may open her lap and it will lay its head there with all ferocity put aside. What else could that possibly yeah, I can't imagine the symbolism no. involved there. But that becomes a really important symbol in Christianity, actually. Yeah. And uh, so this very pure virgin, so it becomes an association between Christ and the unicorn in imagery throughout the Middle Ages. And... The unicorn also found its way into the Bible. Did you know that? I did know that, yes. So there are eight mentions in King James's Bible of the unicorn. The Come best, on, Becca. Come well, on. Well, no, the bestiary of the King James Bible is not very reliable because often what the translators did, which was a Hebrew word that they didn't know, they just think, oh, well, yes. unicorn probably. Precisely. <laughs> so this one is a Hebrew word, riem or reem or something like that, which is more like wild oxen or aurochs. Um, yeah. But that was translated as unicorn. So Psalm 22 verse 21, for example, says... Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. Yeah. Horns so that's, of yes. the unicorn. That's yes. rather odd, isn't it? So it's unicorn, isn't it? It's one horn. Yes, that's a good point. So maybe, it was a, maybe it was a small herd of unicorns. Yes. 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 Unicorns. So the horns themselves <laughs> were plural. Yes, but the oxen. There's an interesting one, you know, the, uh, the, the coney. So they use one of the, in the translated King James Bible, it's coney, meaning rabbit, thinking mm. that's what it was, but actually they reckon it's a rock badger. So in more recent translations of the Bible, it says rock badger, but you cannot say rock badger without everybody laughing. You mentioned um, heraldry, and again, it becomes a symbol of uh, chivalry as well, and it becomes very, very important, partially because of this strength, this immense power and untamable nature in the 15th century. And 
of course, then important in Scotland. So it mm. becomes part of the royal coat of arms of Scotland around the mid 1500s. And with then after the union of the crowns in 1603, you have start out with two unicorns, and then later you get one replaced by a lion. So again, you have that lion and the unicorn. The lion and the unicorn, yes, very famous together. combo. You want them on your team, wouldn't you? The yeah. lion and the unicorn. They're going to win. them both. <laughs> Tough fight with a griffin, maybe, but that's about it. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Could, I might maybe. A lion, a unicorn, mm. and a griffin. Yes, yeah. <laughs> make sure of your team. Yes. I'll just add that people with a British passport will know that lion and unicorn combination. You might not have noticed, but if you look down, that's them together. So, oh, yeah. Yes. yeah, you'll see it a lot. What became really important is the healing powers of the oh. unicorn and the unicorn horn. Yeah. So into and beyond the Middle Ages, this popular belief that the unicorn horn had very special important powers became important and quite soon you started getting unicorn horns being imported into Europe now most of them of course came from uh, Greenland Walrus. they were or narwhal narwhal of course yeah. I thought of that and people didn't quite realise it so they had these items even sort of exhibited around saying that they were real unicorn horns and that obviously was very lucrative business because they had all these very important powers. But it was only really in the, well, quite as late as the 18th century, really, when I think the increased exploration of the world, people realized there weren't any unicorns to be found anywhere. And there was more of an awareness that what was actually coming in from Greenland, especially. Now, one reference in the Copenhagen in the museum was labeled the horn from a Greenland unicorn. So they mm. clearly were linking them yeah. together, I think, mm. which is quite an interesting one. But that's well, a unicorn doesn't necessarily mean a horse, does it? It just means one, one horn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So it wasn't really, so it wasn't a horse as such. I mean, it's in that early description as well. It's not necessarily calling it a horse. It's just saying it's related. It's, it's like a horse, yeah. basically. Yeah. Some of the latest ones do talk about them having feet more like elephants, so more like a rhino. Well, you know, my daughter's growing up, the whole unicorn thing is so fascinating, especially if you've got a little girl intrigued by horses. The idea that there's a magical version of the horse is very... Well, absolutely convincing, isn't it? It's interesting. I've never, I've, I was never interested in them at all um, as I was growing up. But well, you were I reading think, science books and things. Well, you? there was that. <laughs> yeah, she was reading about Maybe that bot, part. butter penis. Or whatever <laughs> yes, <it was. laughs> far more exciting. He's back. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, yes. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. <laughs> but I, I like the fact that it has this really deep history going back to 400 BC yes. and how it was taken up. Do you want to know my favourite fact? Yeah. Oh, it's a slightly bizarre one. In 2012, the North Korean Central News Agency announced that archaeologists had discovered the lair of one of the unicorns ridden by the ancient Korean king Tong Myong. Yeah. And the lair actually had the words unicorn lair written right in front of it. Very handy in case it got lost. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but apparently later on, about a week later, somebody had realised that this wasn't 
actually what they meant. It was just a mistranslation. <laughs> so they'd done this big press release about the unicorn yes. and it wasn't. But it was another creature called the Kirin, which was an, a very important creature in North Korean folklore, which had four legs and either a dragon's head or something similar, but also with a with a horn jutting out from the top of its head. So it wasn't quite the same, but I mm. quite like this idea that mm. they announced that they'd found it. And isn't it interesting that despotic rule of whatever stripe likes to buttress itself with a sort of mythological authority, doesn't it? That they, That's so true. It's like yeah. the Teutonic Knights. and Well, I mean, they were sort of probably real, but the... Well, all unicorns and lions in yes. the royal crest, I think. Is this the same thing as you would say, this is something... Touched that, by magic. Or yeah. Something. Yes. Yeah. So I think you're going to be bringing up the mood a bit now, yeah, look, aren't you, I, I'm going to flag up that this isn't all gloom and doom. It's There's a lot of lessons, a lot of things come from the Black Death. Hooray! <laughs> Everyone's favourite play. And I was going to get to this, but I have to throw it in because of your subject just now, Kat. But this terrible plague that afflicted a large part of Europe and other parts in the early, well, the 1340s, one of the cures was touching on your subject, a powder made up of the ground up horn of a unicorn yeah. and uh, mixed with water. And as you touched upon it, it had to be, the unicorn had to be caught and lulled into submission by a young virgin maiden. There we go. But before these cures were thought of, this disease came out of nowhere. Well, actually it didn't. It was, it had been dormant, we think now, from the sixth century, the rule of the Emperor Justinian. There was a very similar plague. And we do know that the genetic makeup of this virus, this actually bacterium called Yersinia pestis, uh, had been alive from that period in the sort of rodent colonies of Europe. And really what happened was that we know it was transmitted by rats particularly and fleas, but also by human contact. And there are various uncertain routes to this disease being spread in the mid-14th century. One of them comes from this idea that a Muslim was murdered by a Christian in a town called Kaffa. Is that how you pronounce it? I believe so, yeah. Yes. Thank you, disembodied voice. And so after this murder, the Christians fled to Kaffa, which is now known as Theodosia. And it was besieged by the outraged Muslims who wanted to avenge the death of their colleague. And while they were conducting this siege, the Muslim force fell victim to this plague. And as their, well, the mountain of dead mounted, they started to catapult the putrid corpses into the town. Now, we're not sure that that would have worked. Of course, it would have been a very unpleasant thing, but we're not sure that it can be contracted from a dead body. But we do know that it was an appalling disease and they were rotting in this town. But at the same time, and this to me strikes me as a more logical explanation for the spread of this horrible plague. There was a, a dozen merchant ships in October 1347 landed in Sicily and on board were sailors. There were a lot of dead sailors and others who were covered in black boils, oozing blood and pus. Don't worry, it's not all going to be this bleak. So they were cast out. The Sicilians said, you've got to go. And of course they went. And they went to Marseille and they went to Tunis and eventually those rotting oh. sailors ended up in Italy, France and Britain. But it was a complete catastrophe in a, a non-medical culture. There were doctors in England, but they weren't, as we will find out, they weren't really up to the task. In turn, 25 million Europeans died, probably a third of the population of Europe. And it touched North Africa, as I mentioned, Tunis and Asia. 
and became something that was really, well, it was known as Atra Moors. And Atra was interpreted later wrongly as meaning black. And that's how it got its name, the Black Death. But Atra in that context meant terrible, the terrible death. And it quickly gained all of these rather grim nicknames, the Great Pestilence, the Great Plague, the Great Mortality. And it was so appalling to the populations that Ralph Higdon of Chester said there were hardly enough living to care for the sick and bury the dead. So it was a complete catastrophe that overtook particularly Europe. And I'm going to really look at Europe because it's such a big pestilence, this, that we can't look at it globally in the time I have. It was noticed very early on that nobody was safe. This was quite intriguing to a very rigid social order with the clergy as its backbone. People noted that the clergy died like normal people, so they weren't different to normal man. And the aristocracy equally were absolutely decimated by this disease. People realised after a while that one of the ways of escaping it was by getting away from population centres. And the great book, The Decameron, uh, written by Giovanni Boccaccio about a group of Florentine citizens who escaped it, talks about the terrible way in which men and women died. And essentially, the first signs that you had the Black Death was uh, tumours in the groin and armpit that uh, Boccaccio says would be as big as an apple or an egg. So it got pretty bad. And then you would get spots spreading to your thighs and arms and other parts. And really, that belief was that if it, if your boils burst on the fourth day, that you had a chance of recovery. This became a slim hope that you would get through this disease. But really, after a while, when the strain became more airborne, even that was ruled out and it became really a bad way to go. Fever, headaches, chills, weakness, swollen lymph nodes. So Richard's always quick to go to this point, which is a very good one, was how do you explain the inexplicable? What was this? People didn't know about the bacterium. So the theories were so varied. One was that there was bad air or water nearby. Somewhere that the southerly winds brought this sort of in the warmth of their glow into the human population. Others saw it as a lack of sunshine. I suppose there is a connection with vitamin D there probably, but it's a, it's a weak one. Some said it was from over-consuming food. Fruit was considered particularly dangerous. Uh, <laughs> Five a day! Yes. <laughs> also, obviously, God. It was seen as maybe the earth was due a purge because of its sins, and it was a punishment from above. And this led to some people to go for flagellation as a sort of form of penance and hopefully spare themselves from this curse from above. And some went back to ancient thinking and thought maybe the stars and the planets were aligned wrongly. The cures that people came up with were not good. The main one from England, an English doctor called Thomas Vickery, came up with the Vickery method. This involved plucking the back and the rear parts of a chicken and then applying the flesh to your wounds and hope that it would suck out all the badness. Very good. Sounds reasonable to me. I don't know where where he got the idea, but it didn't work. (laughs) And then other animals were used around Europe. Snakes, pigeons were chopped up and rubbed into the parts that were separating. And then really bad ideas for medicine, crushed emeralds, sometimes laced with arsenic or mercury, but at least that would quicken your death. There was a sort of bonus there because it was a hideous, slow way to go. How would you crush an emerald? I think they were tiny already and then you it was a powder more than a yeah. rock. And then 
things gained credence. There was a thing called the Four Thieves Vinegar, which was made of cider, vinegar, sage, cloves, rosemary, wormwood, and other things like that. Ooh. And this came from the idea, this, this fake tale, that four thieves had invented it. And bad air was considered probably a candidate, which, of course, actually is not a million miles from the truth in that human contact was bad. And so incense, pomanders, bouquets of flowers, these were all used to try and purify the air. And people who were worried about getting the Black Death would sit near a sewer or a fire, hoping that they would draw off the badness and swallow, swallow it up. Leeching was common among those who could afford a doctor to come and do it. But the poor who couldn't used to just cut themselves with a knife to try and bleed themselves and get the impurities away. Would you try and lance your bull-sized boils <laughs> around know. your groin? Mm. Well, I think you'd do anything you'd because do anything. you would be abandoned. Yeah. Um, the religious canon, as it were, of treatments were praying, fasting, going to mass more regularly, which of course was disastrous. You know, it killed half the clergy of England, including my predecessor, Vicar of Fyden. He came in 1342 and he died in 1347, I think it was, 48. Well, that's very relevant, Richard, because one of the knock-on effects of this terrible plague was they think it set the path for the Reformation when it came a hundred years later, because people saw priests were vulnerable, normal humans. And it overturned the clergy, overturned the ideas of ancient medicine as well. Yeah, yeah. People began to see that there was a contagion. It wasn't about the stars being aligned. It's very interesting, the sort of devastation of so finding My church was being built at that time. And it was a grand church because finding was grand in those days. And they started to put a vault in the chancel. And you can see they put in the springing for the vault. You can see the last chisel stroke and they didn't do it. And the date is about 1350. So I reckon what happened was they had a team of stonemasons working there. All of a sudden, half Dead. of them died. Yeah. Yeah. And that they never it. finished it. That is absolutely bang on to my, my next point. So just to finish the religious ones, you know, people were looking at this plague as a portent of the apocalypse. Extremist cults raised up out of nowhere and challenged the authority of the clergy. And people not wanting to travel so much led to new universities and new colleges springing up where debate about medieval Christianity oh, took place. Mm. And dwindling congregations and, of course, a dwindling workforce. You know, we've got what is considered now, it sounds rather brutal, an overpopulation in Europe before the Black Death. And that kept in place a very rigid feudal system whereby... Serfs toiled on the soil for nothing much, more than board and, and a few crops. But they were able to renegotiate their status in society. And wages tripled in the wake of the Black Death and led in turn to the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, where the peasantry suddenly thought, actually, we have a purpose, we have a role and we have a value. And this led to all sorts of strange results, including a proliferation of very extreme fashion among the elite, because suddenly the normal person had a, an expendable income. You know, taverns started to exist because people could buy ale on a regular basis. But also people were dressing in, in much more finery as a, as a normal working person. So the elite got more and more flamboyant in their dress as a result to try and reestablish their importance and specialness in society. Also, it was a big revolution for the role of women because 
they had much more say in their way of life after the Black Death. It's the first time they were able to own land in their own right. They had more of a say in the choice of partners. They were able to join trade guilds. And they were allowed to have their own shipping and textile businesses. They were no longer possessions. They were possessed. You also find in the 14th century, there's a big rise in women mystics. And I think that was because quite a lot of women were widowed mm. and therefore had wealth and used what they could to you know, add their voices to a conversation which had previously denied them a voice, I think. It's true. And art became more realistic after the 1340s, and, and it was a more realistic view of the world and much more representation of death. It had shaken everyone. They'd seen death up close in huge numbers. Like the First World War in our own era, wasn't it? Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. And then the genetic legacy, this is more one for Cat, really, but it's so interesting because there were so many deaths in this period that it changed the genetic diversity of the UK. They reckon that the UK now has less genetic diversity than it did in the 11th century because the whole tranches of people were wiped out. And this could explain why Europeans respond differently today to certain diseases and have different susceptibilities to autoimmune conditions. And in fact, uh, India, which didn't have this plague in the same way, has a completely different set of immune receptors than the bulk of Europe. It was just so substantial. Like, there's no way it couldn't have had a significant effect like that, I think. No, because and of course, that many looking, people are gone. Well, looking for reasons, we've touched on the divine reasons, etc. But looking in terms of personnel as who could be held to account for this, I'm afraid that the Jewish people of Europe did very badly because they were seen to have a much higher survival rate than Christians. The experts think that's probably down to the rituals of personal hygiene involved in the Jewish faith. But they were persecuted. And in fact, there was a massacre in 1349 in Strasbourg of 2,000 Jews. And the general hatred of Jewish people at this time, because of the Black Death and their survival rate, led to many of them emigrating to what is now Poland. Oh, that's where the... So that's the, when the course of Jewish settlement in Eastern Europe. Yes. Fascinating. And then also others who were blamed and suffered in, in a major way were friars, pilgrims, beggars, foreigners, lepers, and the Romani. So it's, a, it's people who wandered. These people Wonder. who came into your yeah. community were obviously bringing this thing because it couldn't have manifested itself by itself. Anyway, the Black Death did die down for various reasons in, after 1353, but it flared up again. And in fact, the Great Plague of 1665 in London saw perhaps 100,000 or a fifth of London killed by it. And it's still, you know, it's still possible it could come back. But one of the main ways that it was dealt with, which is my favourite fact, is this very clever, it's called Dubrovnik now, but it used to be called Ragusa, the port in Croatia, of course, which was owned by the Venetians at the time. They decided that the only way of stopping this coming in was to make sure that ships that entered Dubrovnik Harbour stayed offshore for 30 days before anyone was allowed on board. And this was then made into 40 days, which is where we get the term quarantine from. Quarantina is, is 40. And so it's from this period and this terrible pestilence that we get something that's very familiar to us today. Mm. Like that. I'm glad there's a favourite fact. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's so tricky, interesting that even now you could go to 
my old church St Mary's in Findon and see so vividly expressed the last chisel mark yeah. by the last mason to work on the springing of the vault. And you think, well, what what else can it have been other than the the Black Death? It wiped out the guy who paid for it. It wiped them out, I suppose. Well, that's that's absolutely true. And even as far away as I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's, I think it's Kyrgyzstan. Um, in in the 1330s and so on, they have very clearly marked tombstones. And then 1338 to 9, they think it started there a decade before it reached um, Europe. They have this word on this absolute rush of gravestones, and it has this word on it, uh, Mortana. And please, if you're Syriac, excuse my pronunciation, but it means pestilence. And that's uh, mm. that's what ran through that community 10 years before it took hold of the rest of the Bubonic world. plague. I mean, if it came back again, presumably we'd have more in our arsenal to fight it off. You'd take a couple of neurophenomia and write as rain. Cat, this is your thing. But when they dig up sort of graves of people who died from the plague in London, they're always quite nervous about it because imagine the bacterium could still be alive, couldn't it? Yeah, I think at the moment it's been pretty safe, pretty clear, but there's always the fear, isn't there? There could be some other contagion that we don't know about. And in tombs, so there was a lot of that. If you think about Egyptian tombs being opened and this idea that you have sealed evil bugs bugs and viruses mm. and you know whatever in those is, is obviously possible but um, oh, anthrax island yeah it's interesting I, I like all the social changes that take place and I think if you look at COVID and try and think about what's changed after that and mm. it's things like remote working and Zoom calls I, and video exactly calls. Exactly right. Properly changed. I mean, those are comparatively quite small, but they are still things that we can see and things that we've, we can notice in, in our society. And I like thinking of that in the past as well. I think the Black Death entered the culture so profoundly as this sort of feeling that there was a kind of judgment on a sinful drug. Because that recurred in the AIDS pandemic. That sort yes. of response came up, oh, this is a judgment on a sinful generation. This, are, yeah. this is what happens when you stray from a norm, you know. That yeah. idea of divine punishment or some kind of punishment is still a powerful one, isn't it? But also that, I mean, you were very much part of that culture, Richard, the idea that this was an unstoppable yeah. pestilence yeah. and terrifying. It was terrifying. Because yeah. we've relied on doctors for over 100 years to crack everything. Well, I can remember that with the first cases of people being sort of looked after in hospital and this sort of sense of what a surprise it was to medics that they just, A, didn't understand what was happening or they began to work it out, but B, had nothing to offer, really. Mm. Mm. And it was interesting change in medical culture, I think. Perhaps, I don't know. Mm. Oh, I'd avoid the Black Death, though, wouldn't you? I'd avoid it like the plague. Yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so on that happy note. Thank you. <laughs> well, Thank you. On to another happy topic. Wow. So Richard, something debtors' else. prisons. Yeah, something else you might like to avoid like the plague is <laughs> debtors' prisons, which yes. is very much a feature of life in England for very many years, actually. There are notorious ancient prisons, like the Clink Prison, which was the prison that was controlled by the bishops of Winchester, who were huge sort of powers in medieval England. But the sort of first debtors' prison of that antiquity would be the Fleet, which I think was founded in 1197, the Fleet Prison, which is off just what we now call Farringdon Road in London, well, just going towards St Paul's Cathedral. And then the Marshall Sea, which is perhaps the most notorious, most well, that was um, 14th century, and I think not unrelated to huge changes that came along on the back of the Black Death. And there was the King's Bench Prison, which became the Queen's Bench Prison, ended up as the Queen's Prison. 
Essentially, it sort of began really with The Verge. Now, The Verge was the 12-mile perimeter that surrounded the sovereign, wherever the sovereign might be. And so offences that were committed to do with, you know, uh, lese-majeste, whatever it might be, would be judged by the night marshal. The night marshal's jurisdiction would be wherever the monarch was, and if you were well foul of that, then you would be imprisoned. Imprisonment was not a punishment initially. It was a method of holding people before trial and before punishment. So prison itself was not seen as punishment. It was seen as a place where you put people before they appeared before the judiciary or before they suffered whatever sentence they might get, which was usually execution, flogging, the pillory, the stock, transportation later. So you could land yourself up in one of these institutions for various reasons. Piracy was one, various offences against the king's majesty. Debt would be one, not paying the crown a debt that was owed. And that's really where the notion of the debtor's prison got going. It vastly expanded with the rise of the sort of mercantile world, I think, because when trade really got going, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, it was soon outstripped the supply of gold and silver. So if you can't actually come up with hard cash to fund people's enterprises and trade, well, then you do it through credit. So credit hugely increased in that period. And where you have credit, you have creditors. And when creditors call in their loans and you don't have the means to pay it, well, then you need to do something about that. And so the debtor's prison became really the means in which you did that. Half the prison population in Britain in the 18th century were in prison for debt. It was a very, very common thing. When anyone could get into debt, you could be poor, you could be rich. The South Sea bubble, of course, saw off the fortunes of a great many. And it was very easy to get a bill to get your creditors to get you put inside the clink. It happened very, very easily. Once you got there, it was a very sort of mixed experience. They had two sides to a debtor's prison. This is true of the fleet, true also of the Marshall Sea the commons and the masters. So if you were a person of wealth and standing and with friends of wealth and standing, they could soften the blow of your prison experience. So if you were on the master side, you could live in sometimes quite luxurious lodging. Some of them were rather splendid, in fact. You could have servants. You could have food and drink brought in. Your family could come and live with you too, at least during the day. And you would be able to continue some sort of trade as a means of getting the money to pay off your debt. One of the debts you incurred was the cost of your confinement. So there was a fee for everything. There was a fee for your bed, your board. The most notorious fee was for the easement of irons. One of the options that jailers had to punish you was to clap you in irons, fetters, terrible things. And they would charge you for that. They would also charge you to release you from everything was charged because it was a nice little learner. The prisons were private enterprises mm. and that the night marshal might kind of outsource, if you like, subcontract the beginners running prison to whoever. And there were some notorious people who ran the debtors' prisons, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. Terrible man called Acton. Oh, awful man. A couple of them actually did in fact, go to trial themselves. One, indeed, was imprisoned for the awful things. Bambridge was the worst one. He was a horror. It's a proper name, though, isn't it? That's what you want him to be called in a Dickensian novel. Acton and Bambridge. (laughs) Acton, I think, was a butcher originally. He was tried for murder, got off with it, I think. 
So what you would have at the fleet or at the Marshall Sea was these two sides. You'd have the master side where you could live a reasonable life. It was prison, don't get me wrong. But the other side was the commons, and the commons was awful. And these were for people who really had very little means to repay their debts and could be stuck there in literally indefinitely. As you see, there's a flaw in this model, isn't it? If you have got someone who owes somebody money, the thing you really ought to do is encourage them into a situation where they might be able to earn a living and thus repay the debt. Of course, if you were in debtor's prison, you were unable to do that. So people languished. I mean, some people were in there for 30 years when the fleet prison closed. Two of the prisoners there had been there for 30 years. And the conditions were absolutely appalling. Overcrowding was unmentionable. Worst of all was that the people, the wardens, the jailers, really were given pretty much carte blanche in how they treated you. And they would use you to kind of enrich themselves. You totted up this bill as you went along, so any money you did get or any money you did receive would go straight to the jailer and they'd continue to keep you there as a nice little earner, if you see what I mean. There's a piteous account of... There was a grill at the Fleet Prison where people could beg. You could just stick your arm out of the grill and beg to people just for pennies so you would get you know sufficient to eat. People died of starvation, as a matter of fact. In, I think it was 1729, in a three-month period, 300 people died of starvation in one prison. In hot weather, people would die because the confinement was so full. There was one terrible case where there was a room in which I think it was 23 women were confined at one point, and they were so crowded they were unable to lie down. I mean, it was absolutely appalling. And you'd be surprised at who had spent time in them. John Dunn, for example, was imprisoned actually the King's Bench Prison, not for debt, as it turns out. It was related to debt. It was from trying to work out whether he was properly married or not. Ben Johnson, he spent time in debtor's prison. Lady Emma Hamilton, she spent some time in debtor's prison too. Perhaps the most famous inhabitant of a debtor's prison was John Dickens, father of Charles Dickens, who, I think it was in the 1820s, had a debt of 40 quid with a baker. Quite a debt, actually, to run up with a baker, I have mm, to say. Mm-hmm. But he went off to the Marshalsea and was confined there, which meant that Charles Dickens, at the age of 12, the idols of childhood, if that's what they were, came to an abrupt end because he was sent off to work in a bottle-blacking factory in the Hungerford Stairs and lodged with relatives in Camden Town. And that, I think, was a hugely formative experience for him. Written about, of course, in Little Dorrit, uh, about the debtors' Mm -hmm. prisons. They were absolutely appalling. There was an inspection of them in 1729. There was a man called Oglethorpe, who was a member of Parliament, who later went on to found Georgia, as a matter of fact. Um, (laughs) But he was so appalled by this, he went in. And the conditions that they discovered were just absolutely dreadful. Like workhouses, people were terrified of them. And in the Great Fire of London, for example, the fleet burnt down and lots of people got out of that. But they had all sorts of other arrangements in place. So you had the liberty of the fleet. So you could be in a debtor's prison, but live outside the prison within the liberty of the fleet. It was as if the jurisdiction of the prison extended beyond the perimeter of its walls. There were famous things called fleet marriages, where dodgy marriages were contracted within the liberty of the fleet. They were sponging houses. So if you were sent to debtor's prison for debt, undischarged debt, you could be held in a sponging house, so-called because they were sort of lodging houses where whatever wealth you might have Uh, which could contribute towards your release from this debt, would be sort of squeezed out of you like water from a sponge. It's all horrific, isn't it? It really is the worst side of human sort of nature, isn't it? Taking advantage of people who 
could just born on bad luck rather than bad judgment. Oh, and, and lots of people did, and all sorts of people did, from mm. the best of intentions would find themselves. And in this sort of Kafka-esque mm. um, situation of being unable to pay off the debt because any money you earned would be skimmed off you or garnished, as they call it. Were there priests in these places? Was there yeah, a Christian? there were chapels. Mm. There were alehouses. There was a steakhouse in the Marshalsea where you could go, if you had the means to do it. Some people quite liked it. And there were some people, you know, we talk about people become acclimatized to confinement of one kind or another. Some people sort of preferred it in a way to the realities of life outside. But if you were on the common side, it was absolutely awful, unspeakable. The Bankruptcy Act in the 1860s finally did away with them when they were closed down. That's so interesting. I mean, in the timing you say with the Bankruptcy Act of 1860, you wonder how much the popularity of Dickens and the way he shone a light on, as you mentioned, poorhouse as well, you know, how much he was a sort of social disruptor, but also a sort of activist. I've got a favourite fact. It's not because it's nice. It's actually one of the worst examples was at the, the Marshall Sea. They had a room they called the Strong Room. They had it at the Fleet too. And it was effectively a room for particular punishment, solitary confinement, but it was worse than that. At the Fleet Prison in the 14th century, they built a moat round it as a sort of means to keep people inside. And that moat, of course, was irresistible to people who were getting rid of effluent one kind or another. And after 10 years, it had been so filled with rotting entrails from butchers thereabouts that you could walk across the moat, across a sort of <sighs> raft of stinking animals. So as you can they were noisome, they were horrible places. Well, the strong room at the Marshall Sea was built next to the sewer, and it was a plain room without any light, without anything on the floor. An evil warden would send people there as a special punishment. They had thumbscrews, they had head vice, all these kinds of things just to inflict punishment on people. And the, I think the worst one was that he was an army officer who fell into debt and was so poor that he was on the common side, but he was also diabetic. And the diabetes made his urine so unpleasant to smell that all the other people had him put in the strong room. But the strong room was at that time full of cadavers because they would put cadavers there awaiting burial and rats ate his face off <laughs> overnight. <laughs> well, I feel better about the Black Death. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel that's jolly in comparison, isn't it? But if you were in, a, if you were in the Marshalsea or the Fleet, and you found yourself in the strong room with no means to pay your debt, lying there desperately ill with diabetes, oh and the rats come towards you and yeah. eat your face off overnight, that's <laughs> pretty bad, yes. isn't it? That's, that's bad such a lovely. Really. So what I would say is, <laughs> if you were unfortunate enough to be financially embarrassed <laughs> in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Avoid debtors' prison if you possibly could. Run. I've got the sort yeah. of urge to go and check up on my taxes and make sure yeah. they're all <laughs> Your credit date. card. Yeah. The Marshall Sea, by the way, was in Borough High Street. The South Wall is still extant there, but the buildings itself all gone. It's now got the library, the John Harvard Library, is on the side of the Marshall Sea. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Ludgate Station on the side of the fleet. Excellent. Well, the unicorn seems rather a long time ago. Yeah, it does a bit. It started so well. So I think we should just see what the disembodied voice prefers, really. I said gruesome, gruesome, or the unicorn. I, I don't know. I feel we should have done a sort of unicorn sandwich, really. We should have put you in the middle cat to um, even out the gruesomeness. I'm not sure if you're playing a game of would you rather, are you picking the Black Death or the Debtor's Prison? Well, 
I'd probably go for debtors' prison. The survival yeah, rates were higher. Mm, <laughs> yes, you've got something to cling on to. Yeah. Well, I think this week, cats galloping away with the wind. Yeah. Yes. Well done. Thank Kat. you. Well, there we go. That's a, a nice place to finish this week, and think about our topics for next week. Yes. Richard, again, you keep on coming up with these that I don't know anything about, <laughs> which is great. Educational, really. Frank Matcham. Frank Matcham, mm. very significant person in the early years of the 20th century in this oh, country. Well, can't wait. Excellent. And Charles, you are going to be researching postage stamps. Yes, okay. Yeah. And I will be looking into ice skating. Ice skating. We know you're more of a trampoline kind of guy. Yes. Well, those those days are gone. I'm just too much of me wobbles Halcyon now. days. Can imagine that, being 60 and having moobs. And <laughs> Do you know what I found out on the tour when I was in Chorley? Do you know what they no. call moobs in Manchester? No. Chippy tits. <laughs> so horrid. <laughs> good though, isn't it's it? It's very good. It's very good. Excellent. On that note. <laughs> On that. <laughs> we'll leave yes. it there, I think, with this week. <laughs> and if you made it this far, our listeners, thank you. <laughs> yes, I have to say, I'd rather end on chippy tits is it chippy tits, chippy tits than, than the rats eating a face i think it's better yes <laughs> i'm gonna go back to my unicorns so thank you everyone out there for listening if you haven't been completely put off please do subscribe <laughs> to the podcast and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to if you'd like to get in touch with us do send us an email especially if you want to suggest another topic for us to delve into in the future that's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com so in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice if you knew time as well as I do you wouldn't talk about wasting it oh, very good very profound yeah. very wise goodbye bye, bye. <laughs>